40 odd years later or something like that, I still don't know what Kerrigan is. What distinguishes you is not your tool, but the question. When you have a, your father on TV. I'm passionate about what I do, so it's not, it's not hard. But it was easy in the early days because was, everything was new. Let me tell you, you deliver cookies on a stick and one of your deliveries is your high school girlfriend, you quickly find out what you want to do in your life. Hello and welcome to season two of Biomarkers, an audio series that archives the oral history of organic geochemistry. I'm your host, Fatima Hussein, and I'm here today with my series co-creators and fellow organic geochemists, Angel Maharo and Juliana Drozd. For our season two premiere, we're joined by an extra special co-host. Hello, it's Roger Summons here. For today's episode, we spoke with Dr. John Farrington, Dean Emeritus at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution. My name is John W. Farrington, and I currently have the pleasure of being the Dean Emeritus at Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution, and I spent my career doing marine organic geochemistry. These days, John is retired, but only on paper. My wife thinks I'm feeling retirement. In fact, I think I've got an F grade uh, four times. In the true tradition of an academic, uh, that she couldn't give me a final grade because I was still in the ad drop period. John began our conversation by catching us up on what he's been doing since his retirement. I retired as... Uh, as the dean and vice president at the Oceanographic Institution, and then went to, we took a trip out to Utah, where my former uh, administrative assistant was located and had retired, but then had come out of retirement and went to work for a local college in St. George, Utah, and I had an invitation to go out there and teach their first ever introduction to oceanography for undergraduates. So I did that for a semester and set that course up so it could be used. Then I went to work part-time for the National Science Foundation. And then I had a call from a person I know who is chancellor at the University of Massachusetts, Dartmouth, where I did my undergraduate uh, chemistry degree, asking me if I believed in supporting my alma mater. And I said, of course I did. And so she asked me to go there as interim dean for the School of Marine Science and Technology. And I did that for two years. And I left, and about three months later, she called me again, uh, Jean McCormick, and said, could you come back as interim provost? So I did that for about 10 months. As we've heard from many of the scientists featured so far on Biomarkers, there is no one path to our discipline. Some have been direct, others have been circuitous, but it's what you learn along the way that's important. I started in textile chemistry, but to me, some of the classes were like, uh, I don't want to call it witchcraft, but it was, uh, you know, there wasn't any science under it. It was more like an art mm -hmm. of how to mix up dyes in those days. I mean, it's changed dramatically since mm -hmm. then. So I, in my junior year, I switched into organic chemistry. And it's often the case, uh, not organic chemistry, but chemistry, but I took a class with a professor uh, who taught physical chemistry. 
and really got turned on. I mean, my grades before that were terrible. And he was really good. And then I took uh, organic microquantitative and microqualitative analysis after that, where we spent inordinate amount of time in the laboratories, uh, you know, sometimes 10, 11, 12 hours a week, you know, identifying uh, unknown compounds that he gave to us. Uh, and we could only use instrument analysis for two out of the six. So we had to use, you know, traditional derivatives and melting points and all that kind of stuff. And then uh, at that time, I asked my wife to, uh, of, we had been dating in high school and so forth. And I asked her, you know, if, if she would marry me. And I was very lucky. She said yes. And I thought about going to graduate school. And the program, which was not UMass Dartmouth at the time, it was called Southeastern Massachusetts Technological Institute, was just beginning a master's degree in chemistry. And my wife had a very good job as a registered nurse. Uh, she had graduated. And so we decided that we'd stay in New Bedford and, and that I would take that course. And I actually started off with a master's thesis and finished it up in biochemistry and enzymology. But a lot of the courses I had were heavy in organic chemistry. And I want the problem with SMTI at the time was that they didn't have a big library. It was just, you know, it was just an expanding college. And my professor for my master's thesis had done his, or had earned his PhD at Columbia in biochemistry. And he knew about the Marine Biological Laboratory uh, library. And he said, look, you gotta go down to that library. And uh, I said, okay. And so I went down to, I came down to the Cape. It wasn't a long drive. Uh, you know, there weren't any interstate connections at that time, but it was only about an hour and a half. And I arrived at the library, which was at, by that time a joint Marine Biological Laboratory, Woodsville Oceanographic Institution Library. During our conversation, we learned that John became quite acquainted with Woodsville pretty early on in his scientific career. In any event, I went back to the library several times. And I, one day I got tired of writing on my seven by five cards. Uh, you know, remember those days we didn't have any access to, uh, or at least students didn't have access to Xerox machines. And uh, so we made all these notes. And so I decided to take a walk and I walked down the street. Uh, there were these people, it was around lunchtime. I saw these people going into a building which turned out to be the Redfield building of the Oceanographic Institution. And there was somebody selling sandwiches from a cart on the sidewalk. And I said, what's going on there? Oh, those are uh, noontime seminars, you know, informal. People take their lunches and anybody can go. I walked in and they were talking about the latest crews that had gone through the Gulf Stream of the Sargasso Sea doing chemical oceanography. And I thought, wow, you can do chemistry in the oceans. I mean, I should have known that, but, you know, and I went back 
to the library and then I drove home and I talked to my wife about it. And anyway, a long story, I applied for PhD programs in chemical oceanography. Prior to that, I actually already sent in a few applications for combining MD PhD programs because of my background in biochemistry. There are any number of patient, potential patients out there that are very grateful I went to that seminar. And within his PhD, John was looking to unravel the details of the biogeochemistry of the carbon and nitrogen cycle in the ocean with a particular focus on uh, surface sediments and recently deposited material, which then you know, brought us back up into the water column and in, into uh, work with sediment traps and particle and deceptive traps. Uh, it was with a new assistant professor by the name of Jim Quinn. And he had done his thesis research on structural chemistry of triglycerides. And he sat me down uh, and he said, look, I don't know very much about chemical oceanography and marine geochemistry. I know a lot about lipid geochemistry or, or lipid chemistry. And I think there's a lot of really interesting things that we can undertake with research uh, and maybe we can learn about marine geochemistry and chemical oceanography together. I thought it was a very honest, very straightforward, and I thought, okay, you know, sign me up. I mean, literally, that was uh, an amazing turning point. And the important thing about Jim Quinn was he was an early career professor Several of the graduate students told me at the time, the ones who'd been there for a while, said, look, you don't want to do your thesis with him. He's just starting. He doesn't have any reputation. You won't get anywhere. And uh, I said, yeah, but he's honest, and, and we've got some exciting things to do. And so... Eventually, John began to explore the world of sediment traps. My uh, colleague in marine geology and geophysics, Susumu Hanjo, called me up one time. He had one of their first ocean, deep ocean sediment traps out and he had samples. And he, and he said, I'm, I'm having trouble, John, getting rid of the organic matter and I want to do some mineralogy. Can you help me get rid of the organic matter in this split of the sample? And I said, sure. So he says, as long as I can, would you mind if I kept the organic matter and analyzed it? And so we brought the sample down and it was a hectic time. I don't know he was going to see, I had something to do, but I got it all sorted out and extracted it and put them in the uh, cold freezer. And about two months later, Stuart Wakeham arrived. He had already been appointed and he began the analysis of the lipids and the sediment trap samples. And that was how we got involved in, in understanding what was going on in the water column. So an, an, another serendipitous thing was I was showing Dan Rapetta, who I had hired as a summer undergraduate student in my lab, uh, how to uh, look at mass spectra on an old uh, Finnegan GCMS computer. And I said, well, now if we were looking at oil, we could look for some of the fragment ions that are specific for stearines, like 217. And so I 
called up that plot and the sample I said, but this is from off of uh, Walvis Bay in Namibia. And there won't be any because it's a surface sediments. However, up popped these three staring peaks. And I thought, what the heck are they doing there? And then I realized that this happened to be a hydrocarbon fraction that I had hydrogenated to try to identify some other uh, lower molecular weight compounds. And so I, back of my mind was, how the heck? Well, of course, if there are sterines in there and you hydrogenate it, you end up with sterines. And so I went charging out up to see Cindy Lee and said, Cindy, we have some mass spectra dying somewhere. And she said, yes. And uh, so I looked at it and went back and said, holy mackerel. And of course, by this time, uh, Dan Rapetta was trailing around after me asking all sorts of questions. And uh, I went to see Bob Gagosian and I said, uh, look at this. And I won't repeat what he said. It was an exciting time, and uh, we'd actually identified early diagenesis products of steroids in the surface sediments. John recounted to us what it was like to work at the forefront of interdisciplinary geosciences and how it took a while to go mainstream as it has today. So it was, uh, you know, constant dynamic that had been with me throughout my career, and still is, that. Uh, you know, doing research that has societal implications, you know, mm. with various aspects of pollution, but also uh, looking at the naturally occurring organic compounds and the whole interactivity of the biogeochemistry of switching back and forth for me has been uh, has been very productive. Uh, and I have to say, I've been uh, extraordinarily blessed with with postdocs and. Uh, graduate students, you know, we don't have that many in the MIT Woodsville Joint Program, that's sort of like junior colleagues, and, but it's been really exciting. It's an interesting experience to realize that you're advising somebody that's smarter than you. One time, my first graduate student I advised, Susan Hendricks, was working on amino acids in interstitial waters and pore waters, and because we didn't have uh, HPLC at the time, high-pressure liquid chromatography, which everybody else was using for amino acid analysis. We instead did uh, GC of derivatives of amino acids. And to make a long story short, she ended up finding an amino acid in the pore waters that we identified, she identified uh, tentatively as beta amino glutaric acid. We looked it up and it hadn't been reported ever before in any kind of living system. It turned out that that amino acid had been used as a uh, tracer in dietary studies. And so it had been synthesized for that purpose as an, as an amino acid that normally didn't occur. And the synthesis had been published. And so Susan wanted to go ahead and, and try to synthesize it. And I said, well, wait a minute. Before we do that, many times what happens is people synthesize something using a whole bunch of steps, and then they find out later on that they could have eliminated uh, right. or made it simpler. So let's write to the, the people. And so I wrote to the person who had done that, and I got a phone call 
oh, don't go to the trouble of synthesizing and how much do you need? We've got grams of it. <laughs> and I say, well, we only need, you know, a milligram or less or half a milligram at most. Oh, I'll send you a gram. It arrived and we compared it and sure enough, that's what it was. And I thought, holy mackerel, in all of my years of studying up to that point in biochemistry, I figured that every amino acid in living systems had been identified. And here was a new one that showed up in these sediments and uh, we didn't know where it came from. But I told Susan, well, we gotta write this up. And so I wrote a paper and submitted it to uh, what was called Nature of Physical Sciences at the time. And they wouldn't even send it out to review. Uh, told me they didn't publish anything that had to do with organic geochemistry. I said, so I called the editor in New York and I said, come on, what are you talking about? I said, I'm not asking you to accept the paper, but at least yeah. send it out for review. You know, I just read a paper months <laughs> ago in Nature by Jeff Eglinton, the University of Bristol. Okay, okay, okay. So they sent it out for review and it came back, you know, no revisions needed. And they published it. We also asked John to recount some of the moments in his career that have made him the most proud. The proudest moments were the signing the completed dissertations of the graduate students, uh, starting with Susan Hendricks, who worked on amino acids and coal water. So I haven't always worked on lipids. Another proud moment was when I helped contribute to solving uh, some societal problems. So for example, uh, working in, uh, with other people, but eventually seeing that we were able to convince government officials that there was a serious PCB pollution problem in New Bedford Harbor, mm -hmm. and it became a super fun site. And as always, we asked John, what are some of the qualities of good organic geochemists? Inquisitiveness, ability to recognize uh, when you're faced with something unknown. You have to have a broad enough background to take advantage of these unknowns that pop up from time to time. I think Louis Pasteur had a great quote on that. And I wish I could remember it, but I can't because I'm getting to that age when uh, sometimes I lose connection with the cloud. And for those of you listening who are also thinking about pursuing graduate study, John has some sage advice. Oh, I think I would recommend <clears throat> applying to a program like the joint program. I, uh, you know, I'm a fan of it, obviously, but I would often say to the graduate students who were visiting at the time that you want to pick a program where you feel that you are going to learn a lot, that you have advisors available to you that will provide you the kind of advice you're looking for. And certainly we hope that you do come here, but if you don't, keep in mind that we have a good postdoc program you can apply to. To end, John closed the conversation with a message to the entire organic geochemistry community. Thanks to all of the people who made my career possible. To our listeners, 
Thanks so much for joining us today. And a sincere thank you to Dr. John Farrington for speaking with us and for sharing his very special insights to kick off season two. And now for a special message. This is Gordon Ingalls from the University of Southampton. If you're enjoying this podcast series and would like to stay up to date with all of the future episodes, then you can follow the podcast on all good and bad podcast providers. These include Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. Next time, we'll speak with Dr. Stuart Wakeham, Professor Emeritus of the Skidaway Institute of Oceanography. To tune into our work so far, go to summons.mit.edu backslash biomarkerspodcast. Biomarkers is produced in the Summons Lab at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. 